0: This morning we are going to, actually this morning I brought my uh, eldest daughter with me. Um, So Avery's on the front row, and uh, she's almost 17. And uh, as we get into this uh, uh, text this morning, you're going to kind of see the uh, urgency of a father instructing their child. And so I'm like, listen, you got to come with me this morning because this is really for you. So I'm going to preach to her, and you guys get to listen in. Um, but really, in all honesty, we are, uh, we are all listening to the Father's instruction this morning, or that's my hope. Um, because as a parent, as you're raising kids, I've got two, two, two more younger than her, but now I'm, I, um, I'm realizing, man, I've got a couple years left. And there's an urgency that starts to kind of set in of, have I downloaded everything that I need to download into her, into my kids? you start to feel the urgency of them getting ready to leave and cross that threshold from adolescence into adulthood. Um, she just returned from her first solo international trip. And, you know, I'm like, find my friends, like, checking on her and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's just a nervous dad like you trust. But there's also like, man, I want my kids to be successful in life, but I want them to be the kind of people that know how to navigate uh, the complicated world uh, that we live in. Because the the truth is, there are so many competing voices to listen to. Um, And those of you that are parents in the room, you know that. You start to feel that urgency. Um, But we also are are like children. Um, we, We too never graduate out of this thing called life. We are always listening to different voices of how do we think? How do I think about life? How do I navigate the last 18 months of our life? How do I navigate moving forward? How do I choose a partner? How do I go about uh, navigating my my, uh, employment life? There's so many different kind of competing voices that we listen to. And this is really where Proverbs starts to grab us by the collar this morning and try to arrest our attention. And we're going to see a a couple almost kind of different characters present themselves, uh, these personifications. Um, And so you'll hear... Uh, as Ryan laid out last week, a lot of the narrator of, of Proverbs is a father trying to instruct his son. His son who's getting ready to kind of like go out into the world as it is. And he wants him to realize the reality of the world. This is how the world actually is. And this is what you need to know to, to live in the world. He's warning him of certain dangers. He's, uh, he's commending certain benefits uh, uh, to him in that. We're also going to see then wisdom itself, as, as the father commends wisdom, his personified is personified as really lady wisdom. This, this woman who's calling out, trying to get our attention in that. And this is what I want us to think about today. Because it's this theme that runs throughout scripture. These choices that we have, we stand in, in Pilgrim's Progress, have you read that? There's this like fork in the road that we stand at. And we have a choice that we have to make. Who will we listen to? Whose call will we follow? Will we listen to wisdom? Will we listen to wisdom? As the father is pleading for his son to listen to him, right? Listen to me as I follow Jesus. Or as Paul would tell the church, follow me as I follow Christ. There's an example that I want you to listen to, this wisdom. Or will we listen to uh, the fool, um, this, this foolish person, this, this folly that is out there. And we have these two paths that we can kind of choose to follow. As Ryan mentioned last week, we see this really from the very offset of how uh, our Bible's open, don't we, in the Garden of Eden, of which there's plenty of imagery throughout uh, Proverbs that you'll see as, we, as, as you unpack this, uh, this book moving forward. But you have these two trees and this choice uh, that we have. There's this tree of life that, that Adam and Eve are, are welcome to eat from, um, they get to commune um, with God in the cool of the evening, and they're welcome to, uh, to, to delight in this tree of life. Um, but there was this one other tree that they were forbidden from, the, the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes in, and he uh, deceives them, and this, this fruit is pleasing to the eye, and they give in to their desire for that to kind of somehow be like God himself. And it leads to A curse. It leads to ultimately their death, of which God promised them, don't eat of this tree or you will surely die. We see this motif continue to move forward. It, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. We don't have time for that today. But it lays out this, um, uh, this law that God gives to his people. And he says, if you'll obey Yahweh, if you'll follow me, um, uh, it, all it will do is lead to blessing. Uh, The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The fruit of your labor will be blessed. Even like your your kneading bowl, he gets very specific on the ways that he will bless them. He will protect them against their enemies. He says, If you'll disobey my ways, it leads to this removal of that blessing. There's a curse then that follows. It's the same curse that we see that follows in, in Genesis, isn't it? Everything then becomes harder and difficult and challenging. Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist lays out the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats in the seat of scoffers. Those are important words because they're going to show up in our text again today. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are these two paths that can follow. And Proverbs calls on these images repeatedly in these stark kind of terms. Wisdom versus folly. Righteousness versus sin. Life versus death. And it sets us up that we have this choice to make on who we will listen to. And we're going to see in our text today, Proverbs um, turns up the volume. It turns up the amp to, to arrest our attention with a sense of urgency that this isn't a casual kind of choice that we can kind of punt down the road. But this is a decision that we must make because it, it literally is a matter of life and death. And so let's look at our text um, now. We'll read through it and then we'll obviously work our way back through it. But Proverbs chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse. Um, actually, I'm, our text is kind of 8-4, but I'm going to start in verse 7 because it, it, it is a good reminder of, uh, of how it sets it up. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lay in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you've refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and they shall have their fill of their own devices." For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is the word of the Lord. So we see from our text, uh, Ray Ortland kind of categorizes it this way, and I think this is helpful. And so we're going to look at kind of three sections uh, within this. And the first one I want us to see is really the offer of wisdom. The offer of wisdom. Look how this uh, starts. Nine. He says, he, hear my son your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland to your head and pendants for your neck." The father is telling him the truth, how the world actually is. He's he's not um, painting some kind of uh, world through rose-tinted glasses. He's not lying to him. He's preparing him. And he, he says to him, listen, following this wisdom actually makes you attractive. There's an attractiveness to your life that will become if you follow the instructions that are given to you. A, a garland is this uh, imagery of like a, a victor's wreath, right? They would have like Olympics and they would wear this like garland, this wreath around their head, this pendant, this jewelry that they would wear around their neck. I mean, you can almost think of that as like a gold medal. It's this... It's this uh, uh, a symbol of prestige, uh, of honor. They would uh, uh, to, to beautify themselves in this way. And this is what God does with us when we, when He blesses. He bestows His glory upon us. He adorns us um, with His glory. Let me ask a question: um, Do you think most people find the church attractive today? Okay, now, a, a, lot, a lot of it is no, right? You hear stories of people who even grew up in church and they're going through deconstruction processes and turning their back on their faith. All of these sorts of things. There's something in our cultural moment, in the West particularly, um, that the church isn't as attractive as it used to be. And I wonder if that's because we in the church have tried too much to look like the world outside and live by its own wisdom. Too often we align ourselves with the world's kind of wisdom that's out there, right? We're too aligned politically. We're either conservative Christians or progressive Christians or whatever other kind of label we want to put in on, right? We want to try to align ourselves with what is expedient for our kind of earthly, worldly kind of goals. And so often we just become enmeshed in our culture around us to where our wisdom isn't any different. The way we try to actually live out our life just looks like everybody else. But we don't follow an elephant or a donkey, but we are the people of the Lamb. We should be distinctly different from the world around us. And Proverbs will tell us when that happens, there is something attractive about that. That doesn't mean that everybody agrees with us, but there is something that's like, I don't even agree with them, but there's something compelling that is there. There's something about how they live their life. That doesn't fit into the categories that I have in the world around me. That is attractive and compelling to them, even if I doesn't, even if I don't agree with that in the moment. Paul in the book of Ephesians writes some astonishing words to the church. Listen to him. This is Ephesians three, eight, and ten. Eight through ten. He's right, he says to me, that's Paul, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to life for everyone what is the, plain, uh, what is the plan of mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through you, the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the rulers. And the authorities in heavenly places. Isn't that incredible? How is God going to display his wisdom to the world? His manifold wisdom, his plan to do that is through you and I. Through his people. Through his church. Now, when I hear that, I'm like, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like if... As people see how I live my life, are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God unfold before them? Or do they just see people who kind of look like everybody else? There's not much different. Okay, you do your Sunday mornings a little bit different. But for the most part, you're still embroiled and outraged about all the same things everybody else is. And, and there's no actual like, difference of, of wisdom that's brought to bear on the world around us. We would write to the church in Philippians and say, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do the, does the world see our reasonableness in church? Do they see the wisdom of God through our lives being lived out in ways that, again, they may agree or disagree with, but it's reasonable? I don't know about you, but as I look at news from whatever source, what I, what I see lacking is any kind of reasonableness. <laughs> it seems like everything is, is to the extremes, right? It's what gets clicks. It's what pays their bills. It's, it's what hooks us in. But living by the Father's wisdom not only is good for us, but it also is a witness to the world around us of what God is like. That's why he had a people, a people to whom and through whom he could reveal himself. Jesus then also comes as the embodiment of wisdom and self, right? And, and in, in, in his sermons, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to talk about what this life looks like. This series is living the good life, what the good life actually looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because then they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. Because so were the prophets that came before you persecuted in the same way. Now, this isn't some kind of hollow, empty prosperity gospel. Like, hey, if you'll just follow God, your life is all puppies and rainbows. What does Jesus say? No, people are going to persecute you. They're going to revile you. They're going to speak evil against you. And yet, in that moment, we are blessed. This is what leads to the good life. It's a life of flourishing. When we choose the tree of life, And not just a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is the offer of wisdom. One of blessing. One of flourishing. In this life and for eternity. Jesus comes and he says, I've come to to offer you life to the full. Life that satisfies. A life of meaning and purpose. And a life that culminates in a life eternal with him in the presence of God, eternal blessing instead of eternal curse separated from God from eternity. This is the offer of wisdom. Now we're going to look at the the warning of wisdom. And this is going to where we're going to spend most of our time. Ryan's going to unpack more of like what the good life kind of looks like uh, next week. Uh, So he's good cop and I'm bad cop uh, this morning. So uh, we're going to look at the warning of wisdom because wisdom is raising her voice this morning to arrest our attention. And so we go on verse 10. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with, with plunder. Throwing your lot among us, we'll have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. And so here's this warning about these sinners. And so we have to ask the question, well, who are these sinners? Well, in, in one aspect, that's all of us, right? We, we, Romans 3, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the, God, uh, of God, of, of the glory of God. We've all been born as sinners um, by nature and by choice. This is us. We are sinners, but here in this, uh, in this passage, this Hebrew word has this connotation of these are habitual, chronic, unrepentant sinners. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're here with the rest of us as sinners. The difference is, is we've recognized that sin. We're actively living lives of repentance of that sin. We're fighting against that sin. But these sinners are unrepentant, chronic, um, habitual sinners. These are people who are looking out for themselves above all else. Greedy for unjust gain in verse 19. They're scheming. These are self-centered, narcissistic, kind of backstabbers. And maybe you got people coming to mind. Do you have names in your head right now? <laughs> but this is, uh, it's tricky because these take all kinds of different forms. This is why it's so elusive. We end up thinking of all the ways that we aren't like that and miss out on the ways that we could be like that, right? This could be bullies at school ganging up on another kid, making their life miserable to a point of despair, computer hackers breaking in and stealing identity and money, Wall Street insiders exploiting the system for their own selfish gain, political kind of good old boys neglecting their constituents but taking care of each other, it could be what we see happening in Afghanistan. Terrorists plotting and murdering people to create their own ideal world. Racists treating others as non persons who just don't count. They can be just kind of trod over. They're less than. Neighbors who need bad things to be true of someone else in order to justify themselves, gossiping that person's reputation to its death. A faction. Splitting a church. It can be all, it takes all kinds of ways and shapes and forms of people who are living for themselves at the expense of other people. It doesn't necessarily have to be Mao Zedong's China, Stalin's Russia, Hitler's Germany, Pol Pot's Cambodia. Those are all in that category for sure. But the evil rises up in our own hearts. There are many legal, polite, religious ways of saying, come, let us lie in wait for blood. And it all starts in our hearts, isn't it? It's pride. It's envy. It's greed. It's jealousy. It's resentment. It's retaliation. And on and on it goes. These seeds lie in every single heart that can rise up and take root into this bloodlust. And so here's one of the tests that we can look to our own hearts with. Are you happy when other people succeed? Do we rejoice when other people rejoice? Do we weep with those who weep? Or are we happy when people kind of get what we think they deserve? Man, in our polarized world that we live in at the moment, that is such a, a tenuous little place, isn't it? We so have to pay attention to our hearts. There have been times where I've just delighted in people being so wrong and like being exposed. Now, there is a part of that. There can be a holy, a holy side to that to see uh, injustice or falsehoods get exposed and, and truth rise to the top. But there's also a dark shadow side to that as well that feeds my pride. That somehow makes me feel justified and better than that other person. And before we know it, those things go unchecked and our feet kind of are running toward evil. We make haste to shed blood. And I know you thinking, you're like, I've never thought about like murdering anybody. I'm not like here to like slit anybody's throat or anything like that. This is what's so tricky about our hearts. They're deceitful. They deceive ourselves, right? Jesus over and over again, this envy, this, this resentment deep inside is where violence begins. So Jesus can look at you and says, uh, even if you have hate in your heart toward your brother, you're already, you've already murdered him. That lust that is going unchecked in our heart has already made you an adulterer. The seeds of you being a murderous adulterer are already there. And when we don't heed wisdom, those seeds grow and lead us into this other path. And this is what is the warning, this enticement of sinners. Um, sometimes it's overt for sure, but often it's cunning. It's subtle. It's crafty. And the father says to his son, pay attention. Don't go down that path. And so we have to observe ourselves carefully. When anger rises to the surface, pay attention. Stop. Ask ourselves these questions. Why am I getting so angry? What is it that's co- What am I actually angry about? There's plenty of things to be upset with, plenty of injustices in the world. But I've just found them being so slippery and trickery, tricky in my life. They start off as like a holy anger. And before you know it, it's a disholy anger. And that leads me into other places in my heart in my mind <laughs> of being a murderous person towards that other, that other person in my heart. What we tend to do in these kind of moments then, and this is what we see playing out in our world in front of us, is then we tend to recruit other people to our murderous cause. This is why our society is so polarized at the moment. It's not enough that I feel this way. I've got to recruit other people to that. What's happening here? This is exactly what's happening, isn't it? They're trying to recruit him. Hey, come with us. Throw your lot in with us. We'll all then get rewarded by uh, this. We'll, we'll all share one, one purse together. And it's a lie. It's a trap. It's a trap that they don't even realize. He says, they're laying the trap, thinking they're snaring someone else, and it's they themselves who get caught in the trap. He says, let us go down into this pit. This pit, the, the word there for pit is the same that's used uh, in the story of Joseph. Remember his brothers lie in wait for his blood. They throw him into this pit. They sell him off, and they think, brilliant. We, we've, we've executed our plan. and yet in the end, God in His wisdom turns it upside down, and they're the ones now in need and starving to death. and it is Joseph who rescues them from the pit. This is the same kind of imagery that's happening here. Throw your lot in with us. We'll all benefit together, and it's a counterfeit community. It's counterfeit. We're rallying around these like negative causes, and there are causes for sure. Uh, to to rally against. As believers, we should stand uh, in the gap for people, for sure. So don't mishear me. But so many times we we polarize and we unite around these like anti-causes. Instead of understanding that we, the body of Christ, are united in Christ, that is what unites us together. It's not even our causes of justice and injustice, although those are outworkings of our union with Christ. But it's our union with Christ that unites us together. And so we need discerning heavenly wisdom from above, by his word, through his spirit, in his family of the church, in community together. That's why it's so important. That's why this year has been a tricky year. Because for periods of times we haven't had the same community connection that we've, we've been able to have as the church. And in that, you've seen people kind of fall away. And I'm just, you just wonder, is this chafe that, that the Scripture is talking about, even in these passages? Folly backfires in our face. They lie in wait for blood, and in the end, it, it ends up being their own blood. And so we see this lady wisdom, this wisdom personified, calling out in verses 20, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? You hear the urgency. She's crying out. She raises her voice. This is almost like a, a, a picture of like a street preacher in the marketplace at the intersection. Why is she there? Because it, these are the busy streets. The city gates is where business took place. It was where it was conducted. It's where the people were. This is real-life wisdom, on-the-street wisdom, not secluded, uh, you know, in-church-service kind of wisdom that you go into the real world and you're like, that was great, but it didn't, didn't do anything. It, it doesn't actually work. That's, wisdom from God works <laughs> because he understands how the world is and how it was meant to be. And she asked this question, how long, how long will you love being simple? How long will you scoff and hate knowledge? We we live in an age with, with so much information, more information than any other point in time. And yet we don't have the wisdom to actually discern what to do with that. And so we end up scoffing, hating actual knowledge, learning. And God wants to speak into your life this morning with wisdom that only he can give. There's a wisdom from God that only he can give. A discernment that comes through his spirit. Here's the good news. That he says if, if we lack that, there's a way to gain it. James chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. There's a way that we come to God with genuine um, requests of asking for his wisdom not a wisdom in a, double kind of way, a double-minded kind of way that we use wisdom for our gain. I need, hey, you know, I'm kind of in a bit of a pinch here, like a genie in a lamp. I'm, I need a bit of your, you know, special heavenly sprinkle wisdom sauce on me here so I can get, you know, what I want out of that. There's a way that we can kind of come to God in a double-minded kind of way. But he's like, come earnestly, like a father to his child. Hey, come those of you who are parents know, like, um, we have this conversation, like, you have teenagers and stuff. You're like, hey, I, I'm not imposing rules or boundaries or giving you this wisdom just to be some kind of killjoy in your life. <laughs> I know it doesn't um, feel like it on, on that recipient end, but I do this out of love because I, I have a vantage point of the world that you haven't got yet. And it's for your um, uh, benefit. It's for your life to flourish. It's so that I can help you avoid pain unnecessarily in your life. And it's the same way of what the Lord does as he gives us his wisdom. He knows us. He knows our ways. He knows our proclivities. He knows our sinful nature. And he knows the world that we live in and how it ought to be and how it will be one day again. Not to jump ahead, but in, in the third chapter of this book of Proverbs. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But that's so hard to do, is it not? Because I think I know better. I, I think I know what's best for my life. And it takes humility to actually admit that, you know what? I don't. And sometimes, even though I know better, I still do it anyway because it's enjoyable. Because that's what sin is, right? It's this temporary kind of pleasure. So we have this simple, and then verse 23 and 24, says wisdom says, if you turn in my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I'll make my words known to you. Because I have called and you have refused, you've stretched out my hand um, and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel, you would have none of my reproof. There's these scoffers, these fools. And it's, it's really easy for me to go, well, that's not me. I don't see myself in that. I don't scoff at God. Like we think of scoffing as this like open kind of like rebellion. Like and I would never do that intentionally or um, knowingly in, in that sense. But if I'm really honest and I stop, Sometimes that's not what scoffing looks like. It looks like what it looks like in verse 25. Because you've ignored my counsel. Sometimes it's just ignoring the Lord. All I have to do is just be complacent. That is scoffing. It's a refusal to listen. It's just conforming to the norms of earthly wisdom. And I know how to, because I've been around church for a long time, Been following Jesus for almost 40 years. Uh, Been a pastor for a long time. I know how to dress up complacency, even with kind of spiritual language and dressing, and and I know how to say all the right things and do all of those things, and yet in my heart can just be like, eh, just kind of complacent. and just kind of go along with social norms of earthly wisdom. Just be okay with how I am on my own. I'm not gonna kind of like rock the boat too much. I'll just kind of drift along. But here's what the text says. It might get you you by for a while, but there is a storm coming. There is a promised storm that is coming. It's the the language that's in verse 27. When terror strikes you like a storm, not if, but when. When calamity comes like a whirlwind, like a hurricane distress and anguish come upon us. The psalmist sometimes look around and he asks God, why do all my enemies have this great life? Why doesn't it seem like the people who are rebelling against you have any difficulty? Why does it seem like they're succeeding and me trying to do the right thing of the one who who feels like I'm the one getting punished in this? And it's easy to feel that way, is it not? I love that psalm. I'm like, yeah! Where's mine? But it but it reveals, and the psalmist kind of has to like preach his own heart and correct himself, and he understands, right? It's temporary. Those things don't last. Even if it's in this life, what seems like the good life, that storm comes. We have to stand before God at some point and give an account for our life. We see that if we ignore God, this is where judgment finally comes. We didn't have any of his counsel. We've despised the, repro- the reproof of the Lord. Therefore then they shall eat of the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Sometimes the judgment of the Lord is just letting you have whatever you want. Go for it. Just letting you have your fill. Sometimes you have to do that with your kids. Right, I want the sweets, I want the, and you're like, you know what, go for it. Have all you want. And like 45 minutes later, oh, I don't feel so good in the bathroom. You know, I'm not going to get the details of how that works out, but (laughs) you know how it works out, right? You're like, it was so good. You're like, yeah, but you got everything you wanted and now you're in pain. Now you're paying the consequences for that. It's easy sometimes to look around and go, man, I'm not getting what I want. And sometimes that's the Lord's mercy. It's his kindness to you. And sometimes his judgment is giving you all of your earthly desires. C.S. Lewis um, has this kind of famous quote um, in this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. This is what the pleading is. The pleading, the warning is for us to say to God, your will be done. Because judgment often is God saying, okay, you're not listening to my warnings. You're not listening. You're scoffing my wisdom. Then fine, your will be done. Have it your way. And more often than not, that ends up in calamity, in in strife and anguish in this life. But the promise is even if it doesn't in this life, for our life eternal after death, it ends up us apart from God, which is what we desired, right? This is C.S. Lewis's whole kind of motif. Uh, we can get into like what eternity and, and hell and all those things are, but what we can agree on is it's separation from God. We scoff. We don't want God's wisdom. We don't want his advice. We don't want him speaking into how the world actually is, who we are, who he's meant us to be. We, we don't want any of that. We want to live our life, that's the end of the stage, uh, separate from God And in the end, he goes, Fine, have it for eternity. And here is this calling out of wisdom. Regina Spector, singer, songwriter, writes this song. And it's very poignant about us laughing or scoffing at God. She says, No one laughs at God in a hospital, no one's laughing at God in a war, no one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing, or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid isn't back from the party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they're mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cops knock on their door and they say, we got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's a famine or fire or flood. No one laughs at God on the day they realize that the last sight they'll ever see is a pair of hateful eyes. No one's laughing at God when they're saying their goodbyes. Man, it's so true, isn't it? We tend to laugh and scoff at the Lord when we can afford to. We can afford to. Lady Wisdom is calling out saying, your bank account is running low. You can't afford it anymore. (laughs) It is going to end in your bankruptcy, spiritually, physically. But let's end quickly then. I told you that would be most of our time in the warning. But there is a promise of wisdom that we get. So I'm going to end with some good news for us this morning. And uh, Ryan can unpack more of what uh, the good life looks like. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, and then we'll look at the end of the chapter. He's uh, the, the call of wisdom. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. This is Ezekiel language that he'll pick up as well. I will make my words known to you. What was the language? What was the word that was used there? If you turn in my reproof. Now look at verse 32. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So both are turning. That's the reality today is that you will turn, that you are turning today. There is no like neutral that I'm just walking some kind of like my own kind of path. You're either turning towards the wisdom of God, a path that leads to life and flourishing, or we're turning away from that instruction, a decency of fools to our destruction. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Dwelling secure, not this dread of disaster. Jesus will tell the same story in a parable of, of a wise man and a foolish man. A foolish man who builds his life on sand, and the storm comes and washes it all away. The foundation of his life was not strong enough to with, 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 withhold the storm, and his whole life is swept away to his death. Or the man who builds his life on the rock, who builds his life on the foundation of Christ, And the storm comes and it batters the house, but the foundation is strong and it holds. So that's the question for us. Which path will we take? Which path will you turn to walk on this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, um, here's the thing. It's constant, isn't it? We find ourselves going off the path. (laughs) It is the life of, of the follower of Jesus, of the Christian. It's daily repentance. It's constantly turning back towards the wisdom of God, toward the call of God, toward a life of flourishing. moment by moment, choice by choice, decision by decision, is a life of one in, of turning towards Christ, or rejecting that and turning away. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've actually never made that first turn. You've just been living your life kind of headlong by your own wisdom, doing the best you can, just trying to figure it out, hoping it all works out in the end. If I can be a good person maybe. If if the scales kind of tip enough in my favor, if I've done enough good things, to will outweigh the bad. It's the, the bottom line the scripture tells us. There's nothing that you could do. There's not enough good that would actually save you in the end. It's only what Christ has done for us. All of this wisdom that's personified in Lady Wisdom, as we as we move through the scriptures comes manifest in the person of Jesus. All the treasure and wisdom of God is bound up in the person of Christ, in the person of Jesus, who says all of your mistakes, all of your sinful nature, all of those things I will take upon myself. I will clothe you in my righteousness. When I see you, I won't see the mistakes that you've made, the rebellion that you've had. All I will see is you clothed and robed in my righteousness. And on that day, that's what saves us from the storm. It's what leads us in this life, this present life, to a life of flourishing. It doesn't mean a perfect life. It doesn't mean a life without pain or suffering. Um, that's guaranteed. Jesus actually says, hey, they hated me. They persecuted me. They're going to do the same thing to you. Like, that's just part of the deal. And yet, in those moments, there's still joy. There's still a life of, of meaning and purpose and flourishing that leads us to um, a life everlasting in Christ. The psalmist will say it's at his right hand, our our pleasures forevermore. And so, what will it be for us this morning? Will we turn to, to Jesus? Will we actually believe the voice of the Father pleading with us, pleading with us to listen to Lady Wisdom, listen to the wisdom of Christ? And the good news is, is if we'll ask for that, God gives it to us abundantly. If we'll ask in faith, that's a task for us this morning, is that we would turn in faith toward Jesus once again for the first time or for the millionth time, if you're like me. The offer is the same. Christ holds out life. He holds out life to the full in this life and life forevermore. And one day, all that pain does get wiped away. All those tears are wiped away forever. Our existence with him will be returned to the way it was meant to be, back in the garden once again, communing with him for eternity. Or in his judgment, he gives us exactly what we want, a life separated from him for eternity. In a very real place, in a very um, dark and painful place um, called hell forever. This place uh, apart from, um, from the goodness and wisdom of God. That's our choice this morning.